My dad died. I miss my friends because of... I don't know how to tell my friends that. I want to help my friends. I don't know how. The pandemic has left me feeling very lonely. How can I best support students in my classroom? The morning meeting is meant to be a place to let you know that you are not alone. We can get through this together. So join us. Listen, learn, share your stories. This is the morning meeting. Good morning, everyone. I'm Mandy Zucker, host of the Morning Meeting Podcast. Today, I'm interviewing a woman named Becca O'Brien. She's a recent graduate of San Diego State University, pursuing a PhD in clinical psychology with a trauma emphasis. I am um, a little jealous. I've always wanted a PhD. She has experienced multiple deaths, including her sister and father as a young adult, which really did lead her to the work that she is pursuing with grieving children, teens, and college-aged people. She's from a traditional American Indian family, and navigating grief in this culture can be complicated. For this reason, I thought it would be great to interview her, and she can enlighten us on different cultural views in order to bring forth an informed lens for those who wish to be supportive. I'm really excited to talk to her today. I hope you enjoy this interview. So, Becca, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about you and what brings you to the Morning Meeting podcast? Well, I am Becca O'Brien. I am 28 years old. The main reason I'm here is because I, as a college student and before, have experienced a lot of death in my life. And this is a cause that is really dear to my heart. I am currently in school, or I actually just graduated with my BA in psychology. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) And I'm pursuing a PhD in clinical psychology as well. Um, I worked with grieving kids and teens throughout my undergrad, and that has sort of shaped what I want to do with the rest of my life. So I'm I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So tell us, I know you said you've experienced a lot of loss. Um, yeah. Why don't you just, do you remember the first loss that you experienced? Oh, goodness. The first loss I experienced, I was, I was so, so young. I was two years old and it was my grandfather. Mm. Um, And then throughout my life, there was multiple friends, aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents, anything you can think of. Um, But once I hit 17 years old is when my sister died. And then after that, it seemed like every couple of years were very significant losses for me. So it was my sister and then my grandmother who I was close with, my grandfather, and then my father. And that is, I think those were the most impactful deaths that I experienced or the most close to home. And they all happened while I was in college. Wow. So why don't we go back to your sister and talk to us a little bit about what that, you know, very, I'll say the first of that series of really um, powerful deaths were, but can you talk a little bit about your sister? Sure. So I was 17. She was older than me. She was 12 years older. Um, She was someone I, is someone I should say, but that I really look up to. She 
just this vibrant, beautiful personality. She died of a carbon monoxide incident. Mm -hmm. She died and her dog who was in the house also died. Mm -hmm. And her boyfriend suffered severe brain damage. Wow. As well. So I was, when I learned this news, I was working at a daycare at the time. I had just finished high school and it was earth shattering because here's this, she was my everything. I wanted to be like her. I wanted, I, I can, I consulted her on what I wanted to wear everything. And now this massive role model for me was, was taken out of my life tragically at a very pivotal moment at where I'm about to enter adulthood, which I'd been waiting to get to for so long. (laughs) That changed. (laughs) Yeah. And just having that role model in my life just ripped away from me at a very pivotal point was, I mean, I don't want to say the word life changing because that seems to water down or maybe cliche, but that's really what it was. Somebody who was my my go-to was gone. So I had to really start to find my own footing. Mm-hmm. So what was some of the life-changing things that you felt like happened at that point? <sighs> mm. I think the biggest, the biggest life change is not being able to call her, not being able to consult with her, not she's my sister. It's somebody you can call like eight times a day. And I don't care if I'm annoying you because you're my sister. And now there was, I I couldn't call her eight times a day or I couldn't call her at all really. Yeah. So we struggled with that. And there's just the real disenfranchisement of her being far away from me anyway. So that, that tricky feeling of, well, maybe she's still there, but so that was really difficult. Mm-hmm. Your brain can play some amazing tricks on you. And so mean. It's so mean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then you left and did go away to college and then continued to experience some significant losses. True. I didn't leave. I stayed in San Diego. I didn't live with my parents for any of this. They they were bouncing around um, being empty nesters. Okay. But I um I stayed in San Diego. I did continue to experience death. My family had moved to Tennessee and my grandmother and grandfather were living with my parents. Um, they both died within a two year span. And so picking up and going back to take care of my family and be there for them and still going back to San Diego to finish school, that was complicated. And then my father died, um, right before I went to San Diego state. So when I was a sophomore and he, that was, that was a really heavy hitter for me. But at that point, my father had uh, multiple sclerosis and Parkinson's disease and he had it for the majority of my life. So I'm really grateful to have had him for as long as, as long as we did, because we weren't supposed to, he was absolutely not supposed to live for 23 years with these comorbid illnesses. Wow. So what was it like for you when your dad died? Awful, 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 awful. I, um, I knew it was going to happen. I knew my father was going to die. I, through my entire life, I knew he probably wouldn't make it to my wedding. I had always planned on having my brother walk me down the aisle, these things, but 
you can't, you still can't prepare for that. You really can't, you can't possibly prepare for losing your father. Like he, he was my rock. He was, we were so close. Like I was the stereotypical daddy's girl, like (laughs) ridiculous. We were so close, (laughs) but he, um, losing him was, was really hard. Yeah. Yeah. You're an American Indian. Yeah. And I'm wondering about American Indians are typically very close. You've got Mm -hmm. a big network. Um, So was that, what was that like grieving, mourning uh, in an American Indian culture? And was that, did you find things that were helpful or not so helpful during that time? So I want to make sure with saying I had a big network. I didn't, I don't necessarily have a big network on the grand scheme of things, but on a micro level, when people imagine having a very close, um, immediate family, that's a big, big immediate family is really what it feels like. So that is something where maybe we experience death on a, a much larger scale because we are so close with so many people. Okay. What grieving and mourning is like on the reservation specifically is we're taught as young children to not bring up the dead. So you don't speak of them. You don't say their name because that leaves them in a state of unrest And so we're taught that our loved ones have passed on there in the afterlife. We need to let them go. Okay. As a young adult, I really started to do some soul searching and that just wasn't going to cut it for me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And as I've spoke with other people who are in my generation, we are, are finally starting to, or have a more modern, I guess, approach to what, grieving looks like and that it's okay to grieve and it's okay to have these feelings that are attached to our loved ones who have died. And we are now starting to sort of change the narrative a little bit so that we can hold space for each other and hold space for our children. Mm-hmm. But there are no resources on reservations. There are no resources that are American Indian specific because talking about grief is is almost taboo even though it happens all the time, death happens all the time. Death is such a part of our culture. We can't write a paper in college without talking about death because that is, it's ingrained in who we are as people. Mm -hmm. And yet the idea of grief isn't, isn't talked about. And so I started facilitating for a grief and loss group, but while attending San Diego Mesa college, I, went to a fieldwork and psychology class where I heard of a grief and loss support group for kids and teens. I what I lit up. I thought this is exactly what I want to do. Exactly what I want to do. I I never even thought that there would be something for these kids. Yeah. And so my mind was blown. It seemed like such a good fit for me and ultimately changed my life. Yeah. I'm just thinking like it sounds like you didn't really get support when your sister died or even when your dad died, that didn't, wasn't even something that was in your, you know, vocabulary or like in your way. Right. I didn't know that that was a possibility. I had a lot of support within my immediate family. My mom 
incredible woman. Mm-hmm. She is, I have no idea how she has been through so much and still just finds it in her to be there for my brother and I. She's amazing. But <laughs> she she always had a lot of like held space for us and created a lot of support for us, had a very open environment to discuss what we've been through, which I'm sure is what inspired me. But yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't support outside of that. Would that have been something that would have been frowned upon in your community if you had said, I'm going to go somewhere and go to a group or was it just not something you knew about? Both, both. It definitely wasn't something I knew about in terms of being frowned upon. Unfortunately, mental health is mental health issues are so highly stigmatized, especially in minorities. I find, especially in, in certain cultures and which is off because these are those underrepresented and underserved. Yeah. However, because, my people really struggle to go outside of the reservation or outside of their culture for support. But I, I didn't even know that it really existed. Mm. So when I found out it existed, especially for children who are sort of seen, not heard, I was, I jumped on the opportunity (laughs) and really found some intrinsic support myself through the process. Isn't that amazing? It's always a nice benefit when you can help someone else and it helps you too. Yes. So tell me a little bit about, you know, I'm just thinking like, I don't know that much about American Indians, but the little bit that I feel like I know, there are a lot of rituals, yes? Yes. It's highly ritualistic. Okay. So tell us about some of the rituals around death and did you find that to be supportive? Um you know, I often think of rituals as a really, you know, important part of death, brings community together. It does allow you, even if it's just for that short period of time, to express feelings of grief, to mourn. Um, So what are some of the rituals in an American Indian culture that, you know, either were helpful or weren't helpful to you? I find, I too find them to be very helpful, especially because sort of after that ceremony or that few days, there's nothing, you can't talk about it anymore. So I think within those few days, it is really healing to be able to come together as a community that has lost a presence or lost a being and really be able to discuss that. Yeah. Um, the, The rituals after somebody dies and I, if it's okay with you, I'd like to sort of go through, like walk you through what it looks like in my culture. Yeah, please. I don't speak for all American Indian tribes. I know that it varies. I want to make it clear that it could be different for reservation on reservation. It could be different for different tribes regionally. I can only speak to my own experience. Mm -hmm. So what we do or the most important component of all of these these experiences is it has to stay in-house. So from the embalming the body or cremating the body to digging the grave to having the services, this is all done by people on the reservation. We don't outsource anything um, in terms for the reason of walking that person to the afterlife. So everything's done 
while families are touching the body, being near the body, that energetic um, connection with the body as they go through their process. Okay. So when somebody dies, we go to, we take them or they are taken to the mortuary where they're embalmed. We traditionally are not organ donors because we believe that our body is not ours to give. So that stays with the person. After that happens, the body is brought back to either the house or tribal hall, or which is a community building, where the body is put on display for um, for people to pay their respects, come say goodbye, um, stay throughout the night. So this is not just for a viewing, which I've I've learned is very common in Western cultures. So for the American Indian culture, we stay all night. So the body after they die goes when the services begin, they'll stay there. There are what we call traditional bird songs being sung. So it's songs in our language. And that happens from the time the body enters the mission or the venue until the next morning when we go to the service. These bird songs are not just random songs that you can come up with or you can think of. It's very specific, very traditional um, because it, it walks them through their journey. So these are, it's a narration of what their spirit is experiencing. Okay. As this happens, the family is around. Sometimes we're in the building, sometimes we're out of the building, we're eating, but we're all just together. So is that a supportive experience right there? I, I, I find it to be, Okay. I find it to be, that's a really, um, okay place for people to express their emotions. So sometimes you'll hear like mourning and grieving and people are, are able to have those outward expressions or, um, unfortunately a big part of it in our culture is drinking. A lot of people are drinking and eating around that in that venue as well. We, um, we're working on that. Okay. But after the wake, the next day, the, the body is taken to the mission or the, wherever the service, the church, wherever the service is going to be held, the service is held. And then after that, we walk with the body to the graveside. So somebody holds a cross that's made that will stick on the graveside. And then behind the cross are the, is the body and then the bird singers and then the family and then everybody else. So, and then we all walk through the reservation to the graveside. Then at that point, the body is lowered by family members into the, into the hole. And then we, everybody says a prayer and throws like a handful of dirt or shovel of dirt. And then we all stay by the graveside until the body is completely buried. So non-family members, family members are at this point burying the the person. Mm -hmm. And we're all staying by the graveside. Some people are drinking, some people are singing. It's not necessarily a time of celebration, but it's it's just what's done. That's mm -hmm. just how it works. And then right. we go eat. <laughs> we like to eat. <laughs> <laughs> So, and then three days later, there is, I think this is the most deviation from Western cultures is there's a burning. Okay. What happens at a burning, what used to happen at a burning is you would burn the person's house and everything that was inside of it, because 
what's burnt with them goes with them so that when they enter the afterlife three days after the service, they are not entering it empty handed. So, and then nothing can be built on top of where it was burnt. Now we have a little uh, more stricter fire laws. So (laughs) we, (laughs) we don't burn entire houses anymore, but we do burn their mattresses, linens, clothes, items, all kinds of these things. Um, And if you're like your dad and your mom were married, so they're burning their bed, whereas your mom's supposed to now sleep. So with my dad, it was a less traditional ceremony. My father's ceremony was off the reservation with my grandparents. This is how we, we did all of it. Okay. Um, my father and my mother lived off of the reservation at the time of his death. Okay. So this was a different um, ritual. Okay. My, but yes, if the couple is married yeah. and somebody dies and yeah, they are burning all of that. And at that point, the, the spouse will often go live with other family members or they will okay. have a new house or go live elsewhere because that was, that is to go with the spirit. We are very spiritual beings and we believe that we are spirits inside of a body as opposed to having a body with a spirit inside of it. Got it. So after the burning, the friends and family will come together for a very small intimate um meal <laughs> and we eat. Okay. And drink. And then after that it's done. And then there is no more to be spoken of. Nope. Today's episode is brought to you by Patty Patwell in memory of her nephew, Kevin Cullen. Kevin was born with a heart defect in 1994 and passed away in 1995. And as part of their family giving tradition, they have decided to sponsor this episode of Inner Harbor in memory of Kevin. If you are interested in sponsoring an episode of The Morning Meeting, please reach out to mzucker at inner-harbor.org. There are still feelings, as we know, with grief that that come along with all of this. It doesn't just end after you send the person to the afterlife. You now are left with the ashes, essentially. Right. So as a young person... Um, sort of straddling two worlds, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. What was that like for you? Um, You're going to a traditional American college um, Mm -hmm. and you have a history and a culture that you're connected to. And what was that like? I will say that San Diego State has done a phenomenal job of honoring the American Indian culture. So San Diego state is actually built on Kumeyaay land and there is a land acknowledgement, which is posted on the building. It's on their website. It's on their handbook. It's everywhere, which is awesome, I think. And they also offer a lot of American Indian history courses and American Indian culture courses. They have a culture, a class called quest for identity, which is within the American Indian Uh, major, which is really cool. I think they've really set the, set the stage for what other universities across America can do. So that was, 
I think it really helped me as I was straddling two worlds and, and often feel like that, but it really helped me find my footing and see that there is more off the reservation and I can still take my culture with me and what I do without abandoning it. Right. And without disregarding it. Mm-hmm. It's really, a, they've done a great job. It's really reverent and the people that are teaching the classes are anthropologists or people who have studied this history. They're not, they're often American Indian people. So that's, it's really nice. <laughs> they, sounds really nice. High five San Diego. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Cause I think a lot of schools in general, uh, some do, you know, some amazing things. Uh, but you know, when it comes to grief, I think a lot of schools are sort of lacking. They are. Well, in terms of grief specifically, I I can't speak to San Diego State's resources. They do have a great psychology program. They do have great counseling services. I did not ever use them, so I can't speak to them, but I know that they are um, aware. Mm -hmm. I actually feel like, you know, I, I don't know why you didn't use them, but I actually feel like the fact that they have them and that students know that they exist is supportive in and of itself because it many kids will never go because they don't have time or they're not interested, whatever the reason is. But knowing that services are available on a college campus is supportive. It is supportive. And it's it's not like the fine print at all. It's very promoted. It's very there are giant posters that say psychological and counseling services in this building. They tell you exactly where to find it in every syllabus. And I was there for a couple of years and every syllabus, it stated where to find those counseling services, which is, so it's really in your face. It it really is available. The only reason I didn't use it is because through my internship, I was, I was gaining the support that I needed, but it, it's a free service to all of their 40,000 students. That's amazing. It is. It is. So tell me about what felt the most supportive as far as the internship. So much of it. (laughs) But I think (laughs) for me specifically, my mentor, so Melissa Lunardini was the supervisor at the time. She has now gone on to create a consulting firm Mm -hmm. for grief and loss, as you know, radical grief, radical grief, which we radical grief. (laughs) Yes. I'm a big fan, (laughs) but so she was my supervisor and she really, um, saw me. She really saw me for, for more than like the kid from the reservation or the kid with the past or all of these things. She saw me for what I could bring to the table and really gave me an opportunity to rise to the occasion. So she helped me to go above and beyond. So not just fill my hours for what was necessary for the class, but she recognized my passion for the field and my passion for these kids and let me run with it. Mm -hmm. So I was there all the time. I was in so many groups and I was doing admin work and I was a part of camp because I was allowed to. Yeah. So I think that is what was most supportive to me is having, having that person. So in, I believe fully that it just takes one person, especially for these kids on the reservation. It takes 
one person to see you and believe in you and allow you to grow and just support you in that. And that is what not only Melissa was to me, but she allowed me to be for these kids. So that was, that's what was most supportive. Mm -hmm. So you getting support, but also giving support to others was supportive to you. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I think that is such a powerful message too, because um, oftentimes when you're grieving, especially so early on and when it's so intense, it almost feels like you've got nothing to give. And actually giving can fill your cup as well. Exactly. Um, Exactly. Not for everyone. Sometimes, you know, you can't and you just need to be supported um, and that's okay too. But um, it is something to consider that when you are feeling like, um, you know, things are really rough for you, oftentimes giving back can fill that cup for you. Absolutely. And that's exactly what I experienced. Mm. I'm so glad to hear that. And because not only did that benefit you, but it obviously benefited a whole bunch of other children who are going through similar things. So hopefully, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> what are you doing now in the middle of this pandemic uh, to take good care of yourself um, or not? What are you doing that's not super helpful or supportive to yourself? Um, 2020, man. What? <laughs> what a year, what a year. And as we embark on 2021, it's, it's interesting because I don't think any of us really expected to still be in this position. No, I think we were really hoping to take off our mask and be on our merry way. And it's just really not looking like that. Not yet. Not yet. (laughs) Um, I actually had a baby in in the middle of the pandemic? Oh. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Uh, we've learned anything about Becca that I do not take the easy way. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, he was born in February of 2020. Okay. Congratulations. And I am, he is the light of my life, truly. And it is, it's been a very new challenge, you know, having a baby that's very, um, it's completely different than anything I've done, but he has brought me so much joy mm-hmm. and that has been really amazing. I think that being able to care for him and watch him grow and just see the world through these wide, innocent, very pure eyes has been really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, However, on the flip side of having a baby in a pandemic and how that's not helpful is there's a lot less time for self-care. So there's a lot less time for what can I do to help myself? And finding time for self-care is something I've always struggled with. But as a parent, it's something that's become so imperative because I can only be good for him if I am also finding time to to fill myself. So I, it's a struggle. I think it's a a balancing act that I had already been trying to figure out. And it's, if I'm being completely honest, I am so far from having it figured out. (laughs) I'm glad you're being honest, (laughs) but we'll get there. Yes. 
I'm hopeful. Yes, I'm hopeful too. Well, keep us informed. Let us know if you figure out good ways that you can take good care of yourself. (laughs) And please do the same. (laughs) (laughs) We'll certainly do. Anything else that you feel like you wanted to make sure we talked about today or knew about your experience? I think if there is one takeaway from this, it would be to be brave for both the griever and the person who's supporting them. I think as a griever, be brave to maybe step outside of your cultural box, step outside of what might be comfortable or accepted and do whatever it is that that helps you find the support that you need. So step outside, be brave, look around because quite often there is support available, especially with these new web-based options. Even when you can't leave your home, there are still people that are looking out for you. As the supporter, be brave and ask questions. Ask the griever about their culture. Don't act like you know anything. Just go in and be ready to listen to what it is that they have gone through, maybe from a cultural perspective or otherwise. And don't be afraid to look at this specific person through that lens that they've offered you. Well, thank you. Thank you for letting me be brave and ask you a few questions about something that I know very little about. So um, I appreciate the education and um, I'm really glad that I found you. I'm so glad to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, If people have more questions and they would like to reach out to you specifically, how can they do that? I would say reach out to me through my email address would be the best way to reach me. It's Becca, B-E-C-C-A-H dot O'Brien, O-B-R-I-E-N at gmail.com. Becca, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I really enjoy talking to you. I also want to thank Stephen Bluestein for audio production and tell you a little bit about next week. Next week, we'll be interviewing Brianne Leeson. She lives in Dallas, Texas. She has a really interesting, scary story. She was in college and had a potentially life-ending illness, and it really changed the course of her college career and her experiences with friends, and, and she was really gracious to come onto the podcast and talk about it. So um, I'm excited for you to hear from her next week. That's all for today. Good morning to all of you.